0: Welcome to Concerning Therapists Mental Health Through the Looking Glass, a podcast largely concerned with psychotherapists from which a listener may discover much of their character, journey, and a little of their history.
1: The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the speaker and do not reflect those of any employer, affiliation, group, or other individual. Additionally, this podcast is not mental health treatment, nor should it replace mental health treatment. If you need psychotherapy, please seek treatment from a trained professional.
0: Welcome to Concerning Therapists. Um, So CJ, who do we have with us today?
1: So today we have Lisa Yee. Uh, Lisa is a marriage and family therapist and a licensed sex therapist. And I've known Lisa for a while but she, when we talked about doing this, she brought up the idea of talking a little bit about sexless marriage, which is an area I know I don't have a specialty in. So I thought that would be a really interesting topic.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to learn about this. I haven't heard much about it either.
1: So welcome, Lisa.
0: Thank you for having
2: me, CJ. And Erica, thank you.
1: So, How did you get into this, this area? How did this become a specialty or something that you had particular expertise in?
2: Well, that's a, that's an interesting question because it's not something I really sought after um, creating as a subspecialty as I work with, as I began working with more and more couples and um, honing my sex therapy skills and merging the two, I had a lot of couples coming in just, you know, for desire discrepancy, which is pretty normal. Mm couples are just off with how much sex they want to have or what's going on with them sexually. But all over the course of time, I found just an increasing number of this subspecialty of couples coming in where they hadn't been having sex at all and how different that was on them. And so it's just just something that started showing up in my office more and more
0: frequently. Mm. Now, was that something that you had kind of an inkling of before you started hearing about the people having it? Or was it something that it came into your office and you were curious, like, is this something other people are talking about?
2: Yes, it it was something that just kind of came into my office and that I didn't realize was um, as frequently occurring, actually. So I had known of it. I had read about it a little bit. There's not a lot out there though for reading or training on it, but I just started seeing it come in more and more and thought this is quite interesting because it is different than de- desire discrepancy.
1: Right. Uh, that that was the first thing that came to mind. I mean, desire discrepancy is pretty well known, but I don't think I've seen any research or any literature and I don't know whether that's just because I I'm not a sex therapist, but it sounds like it it's something Is it that we don't know about it? It just hasn't been researched, or it's, or it's not a um, a hot topic sort of thing.
2: Yeah, I'm not quite sure why, but there's very little research on it. There is some. We do have a clinical definition of sexless marriage, okay, and that is having sex ten times um, per year or less, so basically less than once a month.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And you know, I guess it's interesting that we need to have a clinical definition i guess it just helps in in diagnosing but what i think it shows is that there's still an impact on people when sex is still occurring but not occurring frequently enough i guess even though there's no perfect amount so when i started doing uh some research into it myself i found that there was very little research out there so there's a definition and they have numbers there's and this was a couple of years ago when I got this number, but 12 million couples, 24 million people in the U.S. that are in sexless marriages.
1: Hmm.
2: So there's quite a few couples out there with this issue.
1: Sure.
0: So when you have people who come in, are they coming in identifying that as kind of the primary issue as being problematic, or is it something that comes out as a kind of secondary piece to what brought them in initially?
2: I think now most of my couples coming in, that's what they're coming in for because I have that identified in my marketing that it is something I work with. So people know they can come to me and I know uh, about it and I'm willing to talk about it and work with it. So now I have it more as people seeking me out for this issue as the primary concern. Mm.
1: And so how do people normally... I guess present. Do they present as uh, frustrated, concerned, sad? Do you see all of that? Is there one partner? Uh, Do both both of them agree when they come in?
2: A little bit of a variety in that, CJ. Mm. But what I do see is that usually the person who's initiating therapy is the one who is the higher desire, if we're talking discrepancy wise, but the one who's really wanting the change, and they are suffering from depression, anxiety body image issues perhaps you know just not feeling wanted loved and desired and it can be a mild response to quite an extreme response of people having a lot of resentment for their partner that has built if this has been a condition that's been present over time
1: Mm. okay
2: so yeah and then i have couples coming in really struggling from both ends and wanting to work on it together so i do see a mix
1: sure and is there a particular length of time before they come in that you see most frequently? Or again, it's it's really varied.
2: It varies, but most of the time I see them coming in after quite a bit of time where this has been their status quo, been what's been occurring for some time, and they're now finally seeking help. Okay.
1: Is there a sweet spot in terms of if, if you were advising couples in particular, not necessarily therapists, but couples about how long uh because life happens pandemic stress all these sorts of things can throw off rhythms and all that sort of stuff so is there a particular point where it becomes more problematic the same way as it would diagnosing depression you get to a certain point and then it becomes that that formal diagnosis
2: Absolutely, I would say that sweet spot would be a year or two in when people are really feeling the effects because you're right life happens people have illnesses, job changes, stressors, babies, all sorts of things that can cause your sex life to change and in a long-term relationship it's going to change mm-hmm. it's not always going to be present on what we want but if it's been to the point where it's been a year or two and you're you're feeling the effects of it, which you know like I said can be anxiety depression um, and it, it just about it quite honestly anything but when you're really feeling those effects cementing in mm. you want to catch it before it turns into that hardcore resentment
1: sure.
2: sure because people come in and and part of the work i see is grieving the years that they've lost uh-huh. and sometimes i see that with you know i've got a couple in their 70s where one in particular is very upset by the time that they've lost that she's lost personally right that she
0: feels she can't get back.
2: And so you want to try to approach it before it gets to be years long.
0: Sure. Yeah, I wonder, what does resolution look like? Like, what is the goal for this to resolve? What does that look like kind of in that setting?
2: That's a good question. And, of course, it's different for each couple. And I think what happens is that the person who has been, maybe if there is one that's been more reluctant to be sexual, their biggest fear about coming in is that they're going to be told just have sex, start mm. having sex with your partner. And that's not the answer. I mean, obviously there's something that's been going on here and that needs to be explored. You know, has there been sexual trauma? Does that need to be processed? Does that need to be looked at? I've had a couple people or couples where one is actually asexual. And so going through that process and determining what to do. And so it is very unique depending on the, the, what's presented with the couple and how to proceed. So it's figuring out why this is happening, where the couple is now, and what they can work towards as a goal as a couple.
0: Sure. So what kinds of tools do you use kind of in treatment? Like what are those kinds of skills that are needed to help them get to that point or ide- even identify what it would look like for them?
2: I think it's teaching the couple on how to communicate about sex because that's just communication is runs awry between couples all the time where we're always talking about communication, 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 and then you throw sex on top of it and it becomes trickier. And so that's where it starts is for the couple to really start openly and honestly talking about what's going on in their heads and, you know, what's really affecting them. So we start there.
1: So with that communication what are some of the myths either clients or therapists referring to you have around uh, sexless marriage?
2: Well, the first one is that the one that I already mentioned is that they're going to come in and be told to just do it. Sure. So I want people to understand that that should not be the case. And I think the other myth is that this is just what happens in marriages Hmm. This is the norm. Sex is there in the beginning and then it goes away and you should just live with it. So I think that that is frequently occurring, but I don't think that we need to settle for that
0: in life. Do you feel like this is something that a therapist should refer to a sex therapist for? Or do you think that this is something that kind of the, the generalist would be able to handle in their couple's work?
2: I think that if the generalist is comfortable with it, great. What I would like to see is more therapists becoming comfortable talking about sex and working on these issues because it's needed. I just had a a couple come to me saying they'd been through three other couples therapists that that none of them were willing to talk about sex. Hmm. And so in that case, if, if you as a therapist aren't comfortable talking about sex, you definitely need to refer out. And my challenge would be to have more... Um, therapists do some training around sex issues so they can become more comfortable because it's needed.
1: So Mm -hmm. is that the big thing with, uh, because not everyone's had the same training as you as a sex therapist, but you obviously know what that process is like to become more comfortable, to be able to talk about that with your clients. What What were the things that were really helpful for you to be so comfortable that other therapists who are generalists could start to work on? You said a little bit about training, but are there other things?
2: I think you're, I think it was one, just my general disposition about being willing to talk about sex um, in general and not having it be something that was uncomfortable for me. So I just kind of show up with that already as a person. And then part of the training is they, as you go through ASEC training, they you know desensitize you um, to sexual issues. Um, it is part of the training. There, and it's quite a long training, so there's a lot of education with what i becoming certified as a sex therapist. And then since then, I've done even more additional trainings. I'm always learning and going to classes and reading books and to become more aware of what's out there and, and what to, you know, what's new or what, what I need to learn as different topics come in my office. So that willingness to keep expanding my knowledge is part of it as well.
1: Right. Well, it sounds like it's a little bit of that self of the therapist too. If you're not comfortable uh, and you're not practicing it, then it stays uncomfortable. And until you kind of take that step in and start talking about it with your clients and feeling that the conversation isn't going to fall apart and that that can be really meaningful to them.
2: Absolutely. I think you're right. I hadn't thought about it as a self of the therapist thing, but you're absolutely right. And I guess the reason why I hadn't thought about it is that because it's so much, it's so part of my practice and that because this is what I do, couples (laughs) realize that they find me and they come to me already knowing that it's okay. So we don't have that hurdle to get over.
0: And I wonder, um, and this may feel kind of out of left field, but it also could be something that is triggering to the therapist and may have issues in their own relationship around sex issues. And so kind of talking about it, um, especially in our culture, which it's just, you know, talking about sex is taboo and all these kinds of different things is so then having that discussion with clients that maybe they're not having those discussions in their personal relationships may make that challenging to even broach that subject safely in a therapy room.
2: I'd agree. I think that, that you hit it right on the head, that, it, that there's a lot of discomfort for different reasons, but that's probably a um, big one.
0: So I wonder just as a piece or if there are any nuggets that you can give that would be helpful to a client if they're listening to this or a therapist who you know identifies maybe this is hard for me in my relationships. What are those pieces of insight that you may provide for people in their relationships to help them kind of approach these issues prior to having to step foot in a therapy office?
2: I think it's examining um, their own thoughts and beliefs around sex, maybe having some internal dialogue with themselves about, you know, what makes this a topic that's hard to talk about or what they're afraid of. If they do come and approach their partner with a sexual issue or conversation so that they can look at that and maybe work on that within their, their own selves, you know, before bringing up the topic. And then I think the second piece that's helpful for people is to, there's a lot of assumptions we make about what our partners want to talk about or how they'll react. And I think instead of going with those assumptions, just having a conversation about having a conversation, asking for consent around, hey, there's this thing I want to talk to you about uh, regarding our sex life. Are you comfortable with that? Can we have this discussion? I think people miss that step quite a bit.
1: I know how awesome you are uh, from personal experience in the therapy room, but can you give us some insight and some uh, maybe some ideas around what it's like to balance people who are in very different places in terms of a sexless marriage, where someone might have that grief and someone else is feeling like it's okay, or they have that grief because of a trauma. And I, I'm sure that gets really complicated and you've got to balance that in, in different ways.
2: Absolutely. CJ, it's it's the, one of the probably trickiest aspects of doing this work is to make both people feel valid and heard and okay, you know, like that There, that I am not going to push too much, um, in something that creates discomfort for them. And I think it's just joining with each person, making sure I do that right away in that first session, hearing them, uh, making them feel comfortable and letting them know that, um, they get to pick their goals here. I'm not the one creating goals for them that they need to, um, you know, let, let me know what's comfortable, what's not comfortable as we go along the way that they have a voice in this. This is collaborative.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you notice that um, in the situation that one will start to shut down and you almost see that mirroring in, in the communication aspect as you would see in the sexual aspect of their relationship. Does that come up?
2: Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I'm watching for that. Making sure that if one starts shutting down, that I, Kind of bring it back around so i can bring that person in the room
1: i mean I, I haven't i haven't done a lot of work with this but what gets me wondering about this is uh, how that changes uh, their self uh, perceptions uh, and because we've got this cultural thing that goes with it as well but what do you see happening to the individuals in a relationship as this starts to be ad- addressed
2: you know, there's kind of a cycle here, or pattern that I see. And first, there might be some fear and apprehension around this change and working on it. But I think what I see a lot is liberation of the weight that this is carried. It creates a divide in a couple most of the time. But, you know, I guess that's something I didn't talk about early on, that if both couples are fine being sexless, it's not a problem. Sure. You know, but in the cases I'm seeing, obviously, it's it's become an issue. And it drives a wedge between them that they don't even realize sometimes is there anymore because it's been that long. Mm -hmm. I mean, one person's doing a good job at hiding the effects um, because they're not talking about it. And so I see um, just that liberation of the weight of this and, and then a closeness that comes between the couple that creates energy within the person again, Mm -hmm. individually as well as within the couple. And that's, that's very neat to see. Very cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about that piece you were just saying when it's kind of just even identifying when it's problematic, Um, even with desire discrepancy or like, I know I've seen some in my practice where people sit at a certain place and that's where they sit and they feel like there's a problem because they're supposed to sit somewhere else than they sit Um, because that's the message they receive from society. And, You know, I could see that panning out in this as well, is that idea of a couple identifies as having sex, you said, less than 10 times a year. Mm -hmm. Um, If a couple identifies that way, but might feel like that's fine for them, but there's the societal pressure that tells them that it isn't. I don't know if that, I mean, that's not really a question, I guess, but um, what are your thoughts on that in that sense of how that would be navigated?
2: Well and, and I think then, if that was a concern, it would be just normalizing that that whatever works for both of them is is what works, and that's the that's the answer that's the goal is to just be in a place where they both feel comfortable. so if they're in a place where infrequent sex or no sex is working for both of them, then that's all good, and letting them know that society doesn't need to dictate what works for us, especially around sex mm. Mm-hmm.
1: So if someone, if someone wanted to move into this area, if it's fascinating for them and either they want to move towards being a sex therapist or particularly the sexless marriage kind of work, what advice would you give them about moving forward? What sort of resources should they look out for? Uh, who should they talk to? Things like that.
2: That's, um, that's another good question, CJ, because there aren't a lot of great resources. I, there is a book by Michelle Weiner-Davis, I believe, um, I, think it's been published quite a long time ago and I'm not sure I have not read it myself actually um so I know that there's a couple of books available but there's not a lot out there Mm. and so most of mine has come from my experience um I'm happy to talk to people if they have questions very happy I did create my own training on this that I presented for marriage and family therapists in Minnesota okay um and so I have some information available on just the effects and some treatment some basic treatment that I start with in couples. So there's that. But um I think um if somebody's interested in becoming a sex therapist, that some of this would be part of their training, I would hope, to some degree.
1: And so what what would be your best piece of advice for someone who is starting this? There's not a lot of resources, but they're 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 being brave, they're starting to say, like, bring up these topics. Um, in session and talk to couples about it and this has come up about sexless marriage not quite ready to refer out because you've got a really good rapport with them and you want to kind of get some information what would be your best advice to them in that situation
2: i would say that they should consider some training for generalists on sex issues perhaps. There's some of those available where you don't want to become a sex therapist, but you'd like some training on talking about sex in the room. So that is offered uh, by a few different vigil- individuals, you know, in the country. And so I think that's one area that they could go to. And the other is to really do some work on the self of the therapist. I think since you brought that up to earlier today, that that's a really important point what are they bringing into the room and themselves and what are their feelings around this? Because that's picked up pretty, um, I think easily by clients if you're not comfortable. And I think that's the basic key is to becoming more comfortable talking about this and being willing to explore whatever comes up from your clients. Mm.
1: Do you notice uh, just thinking through the self of therapist in the room that um, obviously you're comfortable and the training that we've got allows us to speak more about it. But with couples uh, coming in and talking to someone new for the first time, how do they sort of adjust those rules for what's allowed to be talked about? Because couples kind of give each other this side look uh, when they've when you've crossed too far, and we're not quite sure we want both want to share this. Mm-hmm. One doesn't, the other doesn't. How do they adjust those rules when they come and see you and start talking about sex?
2: I've had I've seen a few times where couples are great about asking you know, for consent before they bring up certain uh, stories or facts or details. But most of the time, uh, I, I think I present an area where they become pretty comfortable and it and th- it's fair game. So mm. I don't see it becoming a problem too often in my room, but I, I have seen a few couples that are really good at just asking each other first before they share some details. And that's nice to see.
0: I have encouraged during the telehealth times to do use the mute button. If you need to talk about something before you want to talk to me, feel free to mute it and talk about it and then unmute me. I find it's one of the funny benefits of kind of meeting virtually. I
2: think that's a great idea. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: So is there anything Lisa that, um, that we haven't asked? Cause obviously we, we don't have the expertise that you do in this area, but is there anything we haven't asked that you wish we had?
2: I think the thing that I would like to impress upon you is that it takes a toll on people to be in a sex sexless relationship. It does create, you know, conditions such as depression, anxiety, grief. Grief is one that I've been working with a lot in my room over the, like I said, over the loss of years or, Um, sexual ability or time and it leaves people deeply affected Mm. and so it's not like oh it's just it's no big deal you know if everything else is in your relationship is great it shouldn't be a problem kind of thing it's not at least for quite a few couples um, out there and so I, i think that's what i want to impress upon you is that there are impacts on you know for both people in the relationship and it's they can be pretty serious so it's just something to take seriously.
1: Can Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because that's fascinating to me. This idea that with grief, a lot of the time we're letting something go, and it's often referred to as the death of a loved one. Things like this, and we know in therapy we do grief around lots of things, but around mm-hmm. a sexless marriage, I, like I'm interested in that because you're restoring something at the same time. How, like, can you tell tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm kind of thinking about that. One of my clients who's older and can't give back years where they feel they have, you know, more sexuality or abilities, and that's never coming back. And there's a lot of hurt and resentment there for towards their partner who they want to remain married to, and would like to be sexual with. But that's a big hurdle for that person to get over in order to become closer and be willing to be sexual with with their partner. And so uh, there's just uh, grief over loss of loss of years and time. That is the biggest theme around, around the grief. Sure, like, You know, when people are at certain ages or points in their life, and sometimes it's mid 45, 50 years old where I see that coming in as well, mm. not just 60s, 70s about know, people are kind of assessing what they have left as well in life and how they want to live that life. And there was one in particular that I'm thinking of who had a lot of rage for their partner and their partner was completely thrown off by this thought that they were okay. They weren't completely sexless. There was sexual um, encounters that happened from time to time, but they were never having penetrative sex. And that came out in the room that loss of that closeness and and other benefits that were received by that was a big deal for one of the partners, that they were very upset, rage, anger
0: towards their partner over that. So I see a a big depth of emotion
2: around this topic.
0: Yeah, it sounds like time is a confounding factor, right? The longer this goes on for, the longer people are upset about it. I'm kind of curious, you said you kind of differentiated that this isn't the same as a desire discrepancy, but I also wonder, like, is that a starting sign? Like, what would be kind of the, the um, I, I don't want to call them warning signs, but I don't know a better terminology, so I'll hesitantly refer to that. But what are those kinds of things that you would say, these might be things that, are, that would happen to couples that they need to, that might be a warning that something bigger might be going on before it happens that those years pass?
2: Well first of all your question about it being perhaps different than desire discrepancy because I, I think that desire discrepancy can be the beginning of it desire discrepancy is something that happens I say to my couples in all relationships in long-term cases because how can we be on the same frequency course with our partners over the you know over years and so I, I think what I would say warning signs are are if you've think your partner um, or yourself is feeling like this is something I should do because it's supposed to happen in marriage or in my relationship. I'm not being engaged with the partner sexually and not wanting to talk about it. So I think, you know, those are probably the three things I see in history that are pretty um, dominant in people's histories with those The other thing is past trauma and that's its own course of treatment then slightly different. But if there's past trauma, sexual trauma and that hasn't been treated, I think then that's going to show up in the relationship and it can really can, can go to this outcome.
1: One of the things I try to be in my practices, especially with couples is really flexible about what the constellation of the couple looks like that they're in the room, but every now and again, we might do an individual and I know there's ethical things about how we balance that um, and follow that all up. And you talked about how trauma is often something that we might do on the side. How often do you feel the need to refer out one of the individual members to work on something individually or even just to do some extra sessions focused on that as part of this?
2: I'm with you, CJ. I will see people individually within the course of couples work depending, you know, from things come up or if I need more, you know, history or whatever. But if somebody needs some more intensive individual therapy, then I'll refer out. So for example, if I am working with that couple where one or both have had a trauma history, I would want them to establish with an individual therapy for that because it's pretty in-depth work usually. It's not just a few sessions here or there.
1: Do you feel that that's different with the sexless marriage than it would be a normal couple? or there's really no difference that you're seeing that you might refer out more frequently uh, because of individual stuff or that it's just like any other couple, it's all different.
2: I think that I would maybe refer out less frequently in the sexless couple, at least at first, because I really want to get a good handle on what's going on for each of them. Hmm know the impact um and it is something that needs to be shared within the couple session so that the other person gains empathy you know for each other and what they're experiencing but sometimes in the beginning um the one of them or both would like that individual time to really express their fears around the work or um something you know there might just be something they want to talk about with me individually so i think in those cases i might see more do a few more individual sessions up front and then kind of morph into com- almost all um, you know, joint sessions after that. And then also in those individual sessions, I sometimes find the things that need to be re- referred out for more mm-hmm. individual therapy.
1: Well, and that makes sense because it sounds like whatever's kept, at least from my limited understanding of this area, that you've got this certain amount of... If it's been going for a while, they've found mechanisms to self-soothe, but the co-soothing is hard, so to separate them, would be just doing more self-soothing of a different type rather than moving into Mm -hmm. co-soothing.
0: Yeah, I think you're right about that. Absolutely.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
0: Now, Lisa, do you only work with the couple on this issue, or do you ever get individuals that come in with their partner refusing to join, and what would that look like?
2: Yeah, I actually had one just start with me um, last week, I believe, who had done some couples therapy that hadn't worked for them and now had to decide how to move forward in their life and not necessarily divorce, but what they really wanted and needed and wanted to just work individually to work through some of that. So I do work with individuals as well with that, with this issue.
0: And I don't know, this may be again, slightly off topic, but I wonder, you know, we kind of said that one of the myths is that people do worried or there are there was a history in therapy where people would just say to just do it. What are the kinds of things that you suggest as an alternative if you're going to give insight either to, you know, the clinician who to try to change that mindset or to the client who's looking for kind of how to start to make a change?
2: I would say that instead of giving it that message, it's to make sure that the person um, feels empowered to say what they want in the relationship and working on them with that. And if it's not more sex or sex at all, then that's okay. And coming to terms with that for themselves and the relationship.
1: I've been reading um, a little bit more of Ernest Rossi lately. Um, and from it, it's come into my therapy, this idea of, um, and he doesn't say this that I know of. So um, don't get upset at him if, if I get this wrong. This is all on me. <laughs> uh, but I'm finding a lot with my clients, particularly during this this difficult time when we're on lockdown and and I don't know when people are listening to this, but it may not be while they're lo- no longer locked down. But, but this idea that uh, bringing a negative thought and then trying to counter it with the positive just creates this tension. And often when you bring that negative thought, getting to a place of curiosity um, and asking questions and being what might happen here, uh, not necessarily solution focused, but it could be. Uh, Mm -hmm. But also just this idea of not being set in a set pattern um, or trying to just be really positive and grit your way through it, like just do this kind of idea, creates this tension. Do you see, uh, where do you see that start to evolve in your clients? Does it take a couple of sessions? Are they already there when they walk in the door, especially around sexless marriage?
2: (laughs) I, I wish they were already there when they walked great, in the door, it? right? Yeah. <laughs> and I, again, I think it's client dependent, but it's usually not there. It's it's something that I work with people to um, understand. It's just not to worry about defending their position or why they did what they did, but to just be curious about their their partner's experience, mm. you know, and then, and their own, of course. Sure. Um, and so, you know, letting go of blame, shame, um, and then becoming defensive around it, is something that it has to be done in some of the early early sessions to move on to some fruitful therapy. And Mm. so, but getting people to that place of curiosity is key.
1: And I imagine do a lot of soothing practices and everything in order to get to that place where you're not having that reactivity, like you would with other Mm -hmm. couples work as well.
2: Absolutely. Mm.
1: If people will make contact with you, Lisa, either to refer a client or to reach out and get more training, all this sort of stuff, how would they actually find you? How? What's the best way to get in contact with you?
2: The best way is through my website, and that is just lisayetherapy.com. They can um, hit the contact button and send me an email that way, and I can get back to them pretty quickly. So whether it's you know questions about doing therapy or coming in for therapy, either way, I'm welcome to both.
1: Well, thanks again, Lisa, for joining us today. That was really helpful. I hope it inspires people to start thinking about the ways that they can serve their clients better, but also know that there are resources out there if that's something that they're not ready to do for themselves in the therapy room. And to be able to just have this insight of how beneficial, one, how common it is, but how beneficial it can be to clients that this is not how things have to stay. So thanks for joining us today. Uh, We will put in the show notes, uh, extra details about how you can contact Lisa. And we thank you for joining us today at Concerning Therapists. We'll talk to you soon.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been a joy.